0: welcome to this installment of witness to yesterday the podcast of the champlain society My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Olastiquick. Today, I'll be interviewing Jim Miller about his book, Residential Schools and Reconciliation, first published by the University of Toronto Press in 2017 and recently reprinted in paperback in 2022. Jim Miller is a Professor Emeritus of History and a former Canada Research Chair in Native Newcomer Relations at the University of Saskatchewan. Is the author of several groundbreaking books about the history of Indigenous-non-Indigenous relations, including Shingwauk's Vision, Skyscrapers Hide the Heavens, and Compact Contract Covenant, Aboriginal Treaty Making in Canada. Dr. Miller authored the first ever accounts of Canada's residential school system and has shaped public understanding of issues such as treaty rights. He is an officer of the Order of Canada, a winner of the Shirk Gold Medal for Achievement in Research, and the 2014 Killam Prize in the Humanities. His work has inspired countless graduate students to pursue research in this area, including me. Jim served as the external examiner on my PhD dissertation. His insightful and challenging questions made my work better. It's a real thrill to turn the tables on him today and ask him some questions about his remarkable book. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on Witness to Yesterday.
1: It's my pleasure, Nicole, thank you.
0: the book is Residential Schools and Reconciliation, Canada Confronts Its History. Why is it important that Canadians confront our history when it comes to Indigenous, non-Indigenous relations?
1: It's important that Canadians confront their history because at the present time, their understanding of the past and as the interactions with Indigenous people and Indigenous survivors of things like residential schools differs profoundly. And the history of residential schools and treaty making are two very clear examples of how Indigenous people and the rest of Canadians tend to see the past differently. Non-Indigenous Canadians have an unjustifiably rosy view of the country's past. And until they unlearn that distorted view of their history, agreement leading to reconciliation will not be possible. For an example of an unjustifiably rosy view, you need look no further than former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. You'll remember that he was a Prime Minister who took a lot of interest in Canadian history. He changed some of the nomenclature of the armed forces. His government provided funds to commemorate the War of 1812. And personally, he published a book about hockey history during his prime ministry. In any event, In 2009, following a G20 meeting, he told reporters, we, that is Canada, we also have no history of colonization. Well, I think for anyone to think that in 2009, indicates that they don't have a very good view of Native newcomer history. As the saying goes, no reconciliation without truth. Until we all agree on a single view of the past, Or a truth, reconciliation will not proceed.
0: In the book, you introduce readers to the major events in the history of Indigenous non Indigenous relations over the past 30 plus years, from the first denominational apologies for residential schools to the implementation of the recommendations of the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I'd like to start by asking you why the apologies by the four major Christian denominations were so important with respect to the history of reconciliation?
1: There were two reasons why they were important. One of those reasons is relevant to the Indigenous people themselves, and the other is more relevant to the churches, specifically. The churches who ran the schools and sometimes hospitals were, in a sense, the face of Canada for the Indigenous people who were in those schools and hospitals. From the middle of the 19th century until the 1970s, The Canadian state had turned to the churches to deliver social policies, such as education and healthcare. Students and patients dealt with missionaries who operated the schools and hospitals day to day. The government of Canada was a more remote authority than the churches as far as it came to actually experiencing residential schooling, to take an example. That's why it was important for indigenous people who would experience residential schools, to hear apologies from the heads of the churches, who would run the institutions. For the missionary churches, the era of apologies for residential schooling from about 1986 to 1998 was just another stage in the evolution of their approach to dealing with indigenous peoples they had been undergoing quite a profound change in orientation and approach. From first contact to after the Second World War, the churches dealt with Indigenous peoples as people who needed to be evangelized, to be converted. That was the church's primary interest in them. During the post-1945 period, however, the church has gradually adopted policies towards Indigenous peoples that emphasized solidarity with them as they pursued their campaigns for greater economic justice. So now the church's emphasis was on working with indigenous peoples in organizations such as Project North and the Aboriginal Rights Coalition, bodies that worked with indigenous people to combat economic development that harmed or sometimes just neglected them. The Apologies years were another phase in the evolution of the Church's approach to Indigenous people.
0: In the chapter about the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which reported in 1996, you mentioned that the commissioners rely heavily on revisionist history. What are some of the elements of this revisionist view of Indigenous state relations? And you also mentioned that one of the original commissioners, former Saskatchewan Premier Alan Blakeney, resigned from the commission. In your opinion, did his resignation signal some of the implementation problems that later plagued the Royal Commission?
1: Previously, by that I mean before about the 1970s, Indigenous people were often just ignored by the historical interpretations that dominated the country's schools and universities. When they were considered, they were treated as passive people on whom European newcomers acted they were thought to lack a dynamic capitalist ethos that would enable them to adjust to change and to thrive economically. That was why, according to this older view, they were so poor and marginalized. And that was why, after the first two centuries of contact, they were absent from the historical accounts unless they got in the way of the dynamic expansion of the Canadian state and economy. The clearest example of this is phenomenon was Louis Riel, who was treated solely as an obstacle to Canadian expansion in the West in these old days of interpreting Canadian history. Another consequence of this early historical misreading of Indigenous people was that historians assumed that the policy of the Canadian state towards them was positive, progressive, and enlightened. An example of this misinterpretation were the numbered treaties of the 1870s, which were depicted in what little literature there was on them as provident, beneficial, and effective. These misinterpretations began to break down in the 1970s and 1980s and to be replaced by a revisionist account. They broke down first in the economic history area and it was historical geographers who examined the fur trade and found that indigenous people were active agents they were not passive victims they were active agents who often shaped the commerce in fur the research of the economic geographers historical geographers found that indigenous traders were active agents and had and not just people who had things done to them by Europeans then Starting in, in the 1980s, historians began to examine Canadian government policy towards First Nations and Métis, looking carefully at Indian affairs records. They soon discovered and recorded in articles and books that government policy, including the social services and that the churches delivered on behalf of Canada, were anything but provident and positive. They soon learned that those policies often hobbled First Nations' efforts to adjust economically and to thrive. The Western reserves from the 1880s onward were a stark example of this negative result. So it was these new interpretations of state-Indigenous relations from the late decades of the 19th century until about the 1970s that constituted the revisionist history that emerged from English-Canadian universities from the 1980s onward. And it was that revisionist history that RCAP endorsed in its final report. As far as Alan Blakeney's role in the Royal Commission of Aboriginal Peoples is concerned, yes, I think his resignation from RCAP foreshadowed some of the implementation problems that plagued RCAP's recommendations. Blakeney said that he left RCAP because he did not agree with the direction it was taking. He wanted to focus on discussing solutions to the problems that held Indigenous people back, hoping that each solution would build some momentum for making progress in the relationship. On the other hand, he thought the consensus among his fellow commissioners was that they would examine and discuss the problems and what had caused them. When RCAP reported in 1996, it recommended sweeping changes in governance and social spending designed to counteract the problems it had detected. Those recommendations went nowhere. They did not fit the times. RCAP did not read the room accurately, as it were, because they were reporting at a time when governments were being downsized, not expanded, and when governments in Canada and other elsewhere We're trying to get expenditure under control. So RCAP's recommendations in 1996, as Harry Swain, who had been Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs when RCAP was set up, were, quote, dead on arrival.
0: I graduated from law school in 2001, and I was involved in some aspects of the residential school litigation in private practice and when I clerked at the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. I agree with your analysis about the challenges involved with litigation, such as exorbitant legal fees, lengthy procedural delays, and the re-victimization of the complainants in the courtroom. Can you describe some of the issues litigants experienced taking their claims to court and why new processes were developed to address their claims?
1: You could summarize the difficulty by saying that the, the process they got into when they went to, to a civil trial, for example, trying to get payment for abuse they had suffered, the process was adversarial. And because it was adversarial, it was very often conflicted and it crushed any possibility of moving towards mutual understanding. On a practical level, there was another problem, a related problem, and that was lawyers contingency fees. Most of the claimants who went to civil actions in the 1990s and a bit later did not have the money to pay lawyers outright. So they had to go on a contingency fee basis, which meant that the lawyer who represented them got paid if they succeeded. And very often these contingency fees amounted to very high levels, 30% or more of the eventual award. So that you could easily think that, and people did think, that the contingency fees amounted to exploitation of the Indigenous indigenous litigants. Final problem that was associated with this early phase of litigation was that the civil trials always involved cross-examination of the complainant's case for reparations. And those cross-examinations could be brutal. They left the Indigenous litigants feeling that they were re-victimized in two senses. First, they had to be dragged through and go through all the terrible things that had been done to them by the abusers in residential schools. They had to relive the abuse they had suffered, and they felt, quite understandably, that they were not believed. So for Indigenous litigants, for residential school survivors, it was a wrenching, damaging process for those litigants. The new processes that were developed to replace civil trials all fell under the heading of alternative dispute resolution. They were designed and intended to avoid, as much as possible, the damaging experience of cross-examination.
0: Can you explain why the parties agreed to the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement?
1: The parties to the uh, settlement agreement were, of course, the survivors of residential schools, the Government of Canada, the missionary churches who had operated the schools on a day-to-day basis, and a very large number of lawyers who had represented Indigenous people. As I noticed a moment ago, the traditional ways of dealing with abuse claims simply did not work for Indigenous claimants. It was hoped that the independent assessment process that was part of the settlement agreement would avoid those problems. It seems clear that a better resolution system was the principal attraction of the settlement agreement for Indigenous survivors, and in some cases, for their lawyers. For the churches, who were always dragged into litigation by the federal government, the settlement agreement promised relief from financial burdens and from the painful necessity of opposing people that they wanted to assist. Every time an individual survivor litigant sued the government of Canada for reparations because of the abuse experience, the government turned around immediately and sued or cross-sued the church, dragging them into each litigation. This complicated the litigation, of course, and severely compromised the churches. You'll recall that by the 1990s, the churches were trying to work arm-in-arm with Indigenous people to advance Indigenous people's interests. They didn't want to be fighting them in court. For Canada, the settlement agreement represented a mechanism for clearing the decks of litigation. By 2005, the number of individual lawsuits had mushrooms, and they were up into something like 13 or 14 thousand individual suits. And in addition, and more ominously as well, there were a few class actions that had been launched as well. These were actions by a group of people who said they were a class that were united in suing someone, in this case, for abuse. In fact, just before the negotiations began, or at least the decision was taken to go to to negotiations, one of those class actions had been certified by a court, meaning that it would proceed. And that certainly concentrated the attention and the mind of the federal government. The settlement agreement dealt with a number of other things survivors had wanted for some years. It provided an investigation into the schools in the form of a truth and reconciliation commission and it was something dear to the heart of phil fontaine the national chief of the assembly of first nations it provided for commemoration and this was something survivors had been calling for since 1998 1999 consultations and it also included a massive payment to the lawyers who had been who had represented survivors in the litigation
0: you earlier mentioned Stephen harper and his lack of appreciation for the history of colonization in the country. In the last few chapters of the book, you write about the 2008 Apology by Stephen Harper, and then the subsequent Truth and Reconciliation Commission that reported in 2015. What were some of the major tensions and challenges during this period?
1: The Apology in June of 2008 was a very important and often moving occasion. and. It almost got the apology right. There was only one element missing that was required. What it didn't do was it didn't say what the government of Canada would do to ensure that the problems for which it was now apologizing would not be allowed to happen again. But the fundamental problem with the apology was not the apology itself or the delivery of it in the House of Commons. It was the fact that the Harper government acted after the apology was delivered as though that closed the file. That was the end of the issue. Where, in fact, for it to be really effective, the apology had to be the beginning of a process that could lead to reconciliation. In other words, the country had to build on the apology. Examples of what I mean when I say the Harper government treated it as though the apology had settled things was for example, it folded the department that dealt with schools' litigation back into the Aboriginal Affairs Department. Its lawyers began to exploit what was known as the administrative split. This referred to the fact that from 2000 or so onward, the residential schools were shut down and, children and students were in hostels attending nearby publicly supported day schools. The government began now to take the p- position that any abuse that occurred to a, a, a survivor in the hostel was not part of the settlement, and they actually persuaded a court that they, they were right, and that it really sliced away a lot of the potential benefit for survivors. Another example of the federal government acting as though it, the apology was the end of the issue was it the way in which the Harper government resisted adoption of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And the final example I would cite was that in 2010, the federal government ended separate funding for the Aboriginal Healing Foundation a body that had done a lot of very important work since it was created in 1998. In and against that background, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission began to function just at the end of the same month as Harper apologized in June 2008. But it, of course, ran the first Truth and Reconciliation Commission ran into problems. The three commissioners could not agree on how to operate, and the chair of the commission, Justice Harry Laforme, resigned, blaming the problems on his co-commissioners. They worked on for a few months and then also gave notice that they would resign in 2009. Canada and the churches and the survivors, particularly the Assembly of First Nations, turned to replacing the First Commission. And it was almost a full year before they got the new commission composed of what was now described as a head commissioner, Murray Sinclair, and two other commissioners, uh, Wilson, Bert, Mrs. Wilson and uh, Wilton Littlechild, a First Nations chief. When you look at all the problems and the environment in which the TRC tried to to function, it's a miracle that it did as good a job as it did.
0: In the conclusion, you write, and I'll quote, The lack of knowledge about the past and its problems among the citizenry in general complicates the task of building support for reconciliation. Could you explain a bit about what that means?
1: Well, it goes back to really the first point I made um, in answering your questions, Nicole. As long as we don't agree about how we got into the difficulties that we're in, we will not be able to move forward together towards reconciliation. We need to agree, come to agree on the uh, shared history. Remember, no reconciliation without truth.
0: At the end of the book, You point to some of the positive steps individuals have taken to answer the calls for reconciliation. In your opinion, what are some of these positive steps? And I'd also like you to comment on the quote by James Bartleman, the former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario and member of the Chippewas of Majickening First Nation, which he says, There can be no true reconciliation, and Canada cannot claim it's a just and equal society unless economic and social equality is accorded to the Aboriginal people.
1: As far as the positive steps that are taking place moving towards reconciliation are both individual initiatives and collective actions. On the individual front, I think one of the most moving ones that I became aware of involved an Anishinaabe uh, elder and chief Thomas Wanakot. And a Roman Catholic Archbishop, Archbishop James Weisgerber of Winnipeg. Topazwanathcott and Weisgerber got to know each other during a trip to Rome that they shared for a Catholic ceremony. And the chief began to attend Mass occasionally and ask for the Archbishop's blessing. He decided that he wanted to push the relationship further towards reconciliation. But as he told Jim Weisgerber, There wasn't a word in his language for reconciliation. What they did in his society instead was they adopted a person. So he proposed that he adopt Archbishop Weisgerber, and Jim Weisgerber agreed to it, and they went through an adoption ceremony. It was a very moving, very emotional individual action, and it led to a very close relationship between Weisgerber and the chief's family. Weisgerber went to a, a Sundance with them, for example, and he was with the chief and the family when the old man finally passed away. There are many collective actions as well. can think of governments, and I think uh, the Alberta and B.C. governments have been particularly good in this respect in revising curriculum to try to get lessons about history into the schools that overcome that difficulty that I've described a couple of times about not understanding the past the same way. Another example would be uh, actions taken to remove symbols of past oppressive actors. And one of the clearest examples of that would be the statue of Edward Cornwallis in Halifax. Cornwallis was the first governor of Halifax, and he was the founder, indeed, of the city. But he was also the man who issued a scalp proclamation, offering a bounty for the scalps of Mi'kmaq people. He was, as you can understand, a real hated symbol to Mi'kmaq, and they pushed for, with support from others, for the removal of the statue. It was eventually removed. As far as the late James Bartleman's comment about no true reconciliation unless economic and social equality is accorded to Aboriginal peoples, you know, I really could not agree more. He was absolutely right. Symbolic gestures such as formal apologies are important. I'm not at all, you know, dismissing them or downgrading them but they're not enough. Even the compensation on an individual basis, such as we've had under the settlement agreement are a form of justice, but they're not enough. We have to advance collectively towards economic justice for indigenous peoples. And I think one of the best stories or anecdotes to illustrate what's meant by this emerges from South Africa, where, of course, there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. According to the story, which might or might not actually have happened, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, Tabo, an indigenous man in South Africa, and Mr. Smith were at loggerheads. Smith had appropriated Tabo's cow, and that impoverished him and his family and they were in very dire straits. When reconciliation became a public movement in South Africa, Tabo and Mr. Smith were brought together to try to overcome the difficulty between them. And they sat down, and they talked, and they had tea together, and they laughed, and even little tears as well. And then, as they got up, to leave the table where they'd been communing. Tabo said to Smith, Mr. Smith, what about the cow? To which Smith replied, Tabo, you're messing this reconciliation thing up. It's got nothing to do with the cow. Of course, Smith was wrong and Tabo was right. It has everything to do with the cow, which is to say economic reparations, economic justice for indigenous people. Until advancement towards reconciliation includes that as well, we will not get to the final goal.
0: Jim, thank you so much for talking with us today. Your work has fundamentally changed the conversation about Indigenous-non-Indigenous relations in this country.
1: Thank you, Nicole. It was my pleasure.
0: guest today has been Jim Miller. He is the author of Residential Schools and Reconciliation, first published by the University of Toronto in 2017, and recently republished in paperback in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. And please follow us on Twitter. We appreciate likes and shares. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on March 7th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.